Amen, amen. Hey, if you would, grab your Bible and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. This is the last message in our verse-by-verse uh, -verse walk through the book of 1 Timothy that we've called the household of God. And so if you would, grab your Bible. Next week, we begin our summer series in uh, parables, stories of Jesus, as we just uh, each week throughout the summer take a parable that Jesus taught and teach through that together. I'm so excited uh, for our time in the parables this summer. Uh, but to orient our heart around what we are going to find in 1 Timothy chapter 6, I want to start with this question. Uh, how much money do you need in order to be content? It's, it's okay, you can laugh, right? It's, it's a trick question, isn't it? Like all of us in here probably know or are learning or in the process of learning that contentment doesn't really have a, a dollar amount assigned to it. And that uh, often we can functionally live thinking that maybe there is a dollar amount out there that if we could finally arrive at, we, we might be able to catch uh, this ever-elusive contentment. When, when I use the word contentment and when we come across the word content or contentment in this passage, uh, what I'm talking about is a heart that says, yes, this is sufficient. Uh, a heart that says, yeah, yes, th I'm, this is, I'm satisfied. It's really about a heart that is at rest. And, and right, in a culture right, where our hearts are often best described as restless, aren't we all after a heart that's at rest before the Lord? And, and, and I start with that question because I want us to understand some, some cultural contextual things I think we all get that I believe this passage is so important to help us in. But culturally speaking, Billions of dollars, literally billions of dollars, are spent every year to try to sell us on the things that will hopefully make our life more content and more satisfied. And so, right, when you leave, you're going to drive past billboards and you're going to hear advertisements and, and they're all going to tell you that you're, miss, you're missing something that you need. And, and, and so uh, we live with, with, with a narrative that we got to do more, to make more, to buy more, to be more. Do more to make more, to buy more, to be more. But um, I'm laying before us today that, that I think what we're going to find that this, all this content we're going to study is, is about is found in verse 6 of 1 Timothy chapter 6. I think verse 6 is really the linchpin to what can seem like a lot of different topics throughout this chapter here. And verse 6 says this, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Do you agree with that? And so we're going to talk about how we get to this point in verse 6, and then we're going to talk about how we get to this place in our life today. Uh, it, when you begin to read, and I, I want us to look in our Bible and begin to read in, in, in verse 2 of 1 Timothy chapter 6, right in, the, right in the middle of verse 2 there, we read these words. It says, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy 
uh, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Now, I want you to pause there. I just want to pause midstream because I want to remind us of some of the bigger picture context of this whole book. Uh, this book is bookended by very similar statements like the one I just read. In fact, when we opened the book, we found this in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. And let me read this. It says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So bookending this book are strong statements about false teachers who are infiltrating and influencing the household there in Ephesus. Now, as we come to the, this, this end bookend, we're going to find out the motive of these false teachers. And it's the motive of these false teachers that Paul is then going to launch into this teaching about what is actually great gain in this life we're living. So back in your Bibles, 1 Timothy chapter 6, uh, in verse, uh, verse 5, he says, constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. And then here it is. Here's their motive. Imagining that godliness is a means of what? Paul says, you want to know what's driving the false teachers? And do you want to know what's driving the people who are following them? It's this, it's this, it's this belief that godliness is a means of gain. And I believe with the context of the rest of the chapter... The gain he is talking about is a financial gain. And that's when Paul launches into this beautiful centerpiece of all of this that we find in verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. That's what I want us to get at today. And that's what I believe the rest of the chapter can be tethered back to. And so there's four parts that I hope to equip us today around this centerpiece right here, that godliness with contentment is great gain. And here, here are the four parts I think we see in the rest of the chapter. We, we're going to see the heart of the content. What is the heart of the content? What, what does that look like? And now let me say, that is so important because if, if we lose sight of the heart, you're going to hear the rest of the sermon today and you're going to be convicted or maybe even um, guilt-ridden and you're going to try to leave here and do some things in your own strength. Remember, this message is all about the heart. What's this message all about? And what contentment, what godliness with contentment is all about is about getting to the heart. But we're going to see the heart of the content. We're then going to see in this passage the threat to the content. What is it that threatens us to be a discontented people? We're going to see the pursuit of the content, and then we're going to see the practices of the content. Now, do we need this? Do we need this teaching? I feel like we live in a world that's just like discontentment dodgeball. We're just like on every side, we're bombarded with like, right, the other day, for example, just personally, the other day, I, I love my vehicle. I'm really thankful for it. 2007 Honda Pilot, 202,000 miles, dinged up on the front right quarter panel, but it's awesome. Super faithful, super trusty. But the other day I was somewhere and I walked by my truck 
It wasn't my truck, but I wanted it to be my truck. It's, <laughs> it's what I dream my truck is. And I threw, I, I, I'm just confess. I threw a little pity party. I did. I'm like, I'll never make enough money to buy that truck. You know, I did. I'm like, and then I sat back in my really reliable, trusty Honda Pilot, which now is blowing cold air, praise the Lord. And I was less grateful for it. Can anyone relate? We need this. And so let me pray and ask God's help. Father, we do need this. Lord, we really do want to, we want to believe what you set as the centerpiece here, that godliness with contentment is great gain. Lord, we want to believe it in our heart. So God, as DJ was already exhorting us, we need your spirit to use your word to change our heart. Lord, that's why we're here today. And so do it all for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's start with this part one. Part one, the heart of the content. And here's, here's how I want to describe the heart of the content. Are you ready? Here's what drives the heart of someone content in the Lord. It's big gratefulness for small things. It's big gratefulness for quote-unquote small things. Look, look at where Paul goes right after he gives us this centerpiece in verse 6. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. And now here's how he expands on that. For we brought nothing into the world. Is that true? Think about how a little baby's born naked with nothing. We brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. Is that true? We come into the world naked with nothing. We'll go out of this world here with nothing. And so just like, just a helpful exercise, I want you to imagine right now one of your most prized possessions. Uh, and it could be a prized possession because of its sentimental value, or it could be a prized possession because of its monetary value. But I just try to call some things to mind right now. And now let me encourage you, it ain't going with you. It's staying right here. In decades and decades and decades from now, if it's not already a piece of junk in a landfill somewhere, it's just going to be a rust bucket. You're like, that hurts, I know. But here's the thing. When you're in the presence of Jesus, you're not going to care. It's not like you're going to get up into the presence of the Lord one day and go, you know what, this presence of God and perfection, this is all good, but man, I wish my car was here. Man, I wish that trinket, that would just make it more complete. We're not going to think that. And I love what Paul does here. He just brings us back to the simplicity of how we came into this world and how we're going to go out of this world. And then he uses that to illustrate how grateful we should be for the most basic things that God gives to us. Look at what he does now in verse uh, verse 8. He says, but if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. I'll be honest, I, I'm sitting there Tuesday morning studying this. I'm like, really, Paul? I know you can say that, right? Paul, Paul wrote elsewhere in Philippians chapter 4, verse 12. He says this, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Paul, I know that you can probably say that with integrity, but as I search my own heart and I say, really, if God stripped everything else out of my life and I just had food and clothing, could I really be truly content just in the Lord? 
It's a great exercise for us. But I think what Paul's doing here is when he says godliness with contentment is great gain. Remember, you came with nothing and you'll leave with nothing. Anything that God has given us down to the very basics of life, our heart as his people should be overflowing in gratefulness. Amen? So I thought it would be good. Let's just diagnose the two things Paul brings up here. What our, lo- what our lives look like in the area of food and clothing. Um, all of us, by God's goodness, we got up and we put clothes on to come to church. Praise the Lord, right? And when we leave here, I'm willing to bet we're all going to go home and we have another pair of clean clothes that we can put on for the rest of our day. We're going to sleep in some clothes that we have especially to sleep in. And then we're so blessed, we're going to get up tomorrow and we have another pair of clean clothes to put on. Some of our houses, probably many of our houses in here, we have entire little rooms called closets that are full of clothes. We have more shoes than we know what to do. It's some we haven't worn in five years. How blessed are we by a good God simply in the area of clothing? Let's talk about food. We're going to leave here and we're going to eat an awesome Sunday lunch most likely. And then we're going to get dinner. And then we're going to wake up tomorrow and we're going to have more food by the goodness of God. We live in neighborhoods where we can drive by five to seven. Like on your way home, you'll probably drive by five to seven of these big warehouses with shelf after shelf of food we call grocery stores. And we go to those and we buy food there and we stick them in refrigerators and we fill pantries and cupboards. How blessed are we simply in the area of food? How good is our God? Right, like this is what Paul is doing. He's bringing us back to the simple basics and he's going, God has clothed the flowers of the field. God feeds the birds of the air. How much more does he love us? Oh God, give us a grateful heart for food and clothing. Everything is just gravy on top, amen? And so the heart heart of the content realizes I came into this world with nothing. I will leave this world with nothing. I have Jesus Christ. I'm the richest person on the face of this earth because of Christ. And food and clothing are merely gravy on top. But I'm convicted, and you probably are too, at how little I actually live with a sense of gratefulness to God for the small basic things he gives us. And that's because of the threat that this passage brings up. There's a threat. There is a threat to discontentment that is so prevalent among us and so powerful to the human heart. And look at what the threat is. The second thing, write it down. The threat to the content is this. It's love of money. Do we agree? It's okay, you can be, I know, like, it's convicting for all of us, okay? And the, 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 the verses themselves are going to pull a lot of conviction out of us. But the threat to this, 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 this heart of contentment, this heart of gratefulness is a love of money. Look at what happens now in verse 9. Paul writes, but those who desire to be rich, okay, uh, he brings up a desire. And I know this is pretty basic, but tell me, what is the desire? What's the desire he brings up? It's a desire to be rich. 
Uh, this word desire, you know what it means. It's a, it's a yearning, it's a longing, it's a lusting, it's a, it's, a, it's a desiring to be rich. And now, I want us to understand, again, how much of our culture can be oriented around selling us on how to desire to be rich. And so much conventional wisdom that we can hear is like, how should you grow your desire to be rich? But look at what the Word of God has to say about this, dire, about this desire. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. So if, if I could, if I could uh, you know, use my best kind of infomercial voice here and try to sell us now on this desire to be rich using biblical wisdom, it would sound something like this. Do you desire to be rich in your life? Do you desire to fall into temptation? Are you looking to walk your life right into a snare trap? Do you long for a life that plunges you into ruin and destruction? If you do, you should grow your desire to be rich. Literally, that's what the Word of God says. So many walking out of first service are like, Pastor, that was super convicting. I know. I've sat with it all week. It is super convicting. Now, again, you have to say this every time you teach on money. Money itself is amoral. It's not good. It's not evil. All of us in this room, most likely by global standards, are rich. Some of us in this room, by our culture standards, are rich. I'm not here today to make you feel guilty for the amount of money you have in an account somewhere. I am called by God, though, to help us discern whether we are desiring to be rich. He, he goes on. He goes on, and he says this in verse 10. For the love of money is a root we often, you often hear people quote that they get it wrong. They say the love of money is the root. The Bible says the love of money is a root. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. So think about that. If you picture a root, love of money is a root that the Bible says all kinds of evils can shoot from. The love of money is a root in which all kinds of evil branches in our life can grow from. And here's what happens when that happens. Keep reading in verse 10. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This is the threat to us pursuing this life of godliness with contentment is great gain. The book of Proverbs, this awesome book of wisdom that God gives us in his word, the book of Proverbs, in Proverbs chapter 23, I think it's verse 4, says this, don't wear yourself out trying to get rich. Be, be wise enough to know when to quit. Isn't that good? It's almost like that's the word of God or something. <laughs> don't wear yourself out. If your desire is to be rich, if you love money, you will live your life on a money treadmill, always pursuing it and never catching it. Be wise enough to know when to quit. 
Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 6, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And then Jesus qualifies the two masters in particular. He's talking about you cannot serve God and money. Now, I think what's so convicting about these topics, and I think what's so hard to discern, is, again, as I've, as I've tried to beat the drum and make the point, we live in a culture, we swim in a culture where it's hard to discern. Like, do I desire riches? Do I love money? How do I know? Because I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but how many of you like payday? I like payday. Does that mean I love money? God made, God made money. Jesus spoke more about money. Like, what is to be our relationship with money? I can't answer that for you. I hope that this message propels us, and I'm going to call us at the end to go home and get quiet with the Lord and ask Him to show us. But I can maybe give us some questions that would help us begin to discern, is this threat real, very real in our life? Uh, questions like, do you really believe, do you really believe the money in your accounts is yours or God's? So some theology about money, right? It is all the Lord's. It is not ours. But do we functionally believe that it really all is God's? Do, and, and if you do, right, if we theologically would say, yes, I'm a steward. God's the owner. I'm a steward. All of it's his. Then let me ask another question. Do you have a budget to account dollar and cent for God's money? Because if we're stewards, we should be able to go to the Lord and say, Lord, here it is, dollar and cent. Here's how I've been spending it. What do you think? Ooh, more convicting. And then, with that budget to account for his money, you then can look at that and go, what do my spending patterns say about what I love? So, I've shared this before from the pulpit, I believe. Uh, I think it was my sophomore or junior year of my undergrad. Uh, my bank started, so convicting, when your bank start to sort where you spend money, right? You spent such and such dollars at restaurants last. Oh my goodness. So I, like my bank began to sort. I saw in a month the amount of money as like a sophomore in college I spent at Applebee's. All on a half price appetizers after 9 p.m. <laughs> I was crazy convicted. Right? Because there's nothing wrong with going to Applebee's for half-price appetizers. But when you started to see the amount of money you spent, you're like, okay, Brock, hold on. There's something deeper going on in the heart there. What's going on? So what do our spending habits tell us about where our loves lie, where our affections are drawn? And then maybe, like, we don't often ask this next question. What do my saving habits say about what I love? Now, right, for many of us, maybe we can struggle to save in such a way where there's even an emergency fund. But some of you in the room probably put more financial trust in your emergency fund that's massively huge than you do in the Lord. This is a threat. And uh, I've, 
I've toned down the intensity of preaching. Man, first service got a fire hose, y'all, okay? And the Lord between services like, Brock, you're a shepherd, you're a shepherd, shepherd. I'm like, shepherd, shepherd, shepherd. <laughs> but the intensity which came out was the acknowledgement that like this from the word of God drives a Mack truck straight into the face of the little G gods of our culture. And I'm passionate for us that we do not buy the lie that life is about desiring riches and life is about falling more in love with money. I've said this one before too, but I remember playing the board game Life as an adult and getting to the end and going, oh my goodness, the whole premise is whoever has the most money at the end wins. Oh my goodness, that's how so many of us live life. And then you go all the way back to what Paul says, what are we going to walk out of this life with? Nothing! So God, orient our lives away from this threat now to this pursuit. I said we were going to talk about the heart, the threats, now we're to the pursuit. What is, what is the pursuit of the content look like? What do those who actually believe, 1 Timothy 6, verse 6, that godliness with contentment is great gain, what do they pursue? I want to know. I want to know. What do they pursue? Verse 11. Verse 11 begins a new paragraph, but it's tethered, and I want to show us how it's tethered to this same, to this same theme. But as for you, O oh man of God, flee these things. Flee what things? Flee the desire for riches. Flee the love of money. Flee this root of love of money and flee all the shoots of evil that comes from that root. Flee these things. But God is so good. He doesn't just tell us to, what to run from. He tells us what to run to. Flee these things. Pursue righteousness. Godliness. Faith. Love, steadfastness, gentleness. He tells us what to pursue. He tells us what is important in his kingdom economy. Pursue righteousness. Pursue a heart that is right before God. Pursue godliness. That's, a, again, a word you've seen again and again throughout this book. Godliness means God-centeredness. Pursue a God-centered life. Pursue faith. Pursue love. Pursue steadfastness. Pursue gentleness. But not only does he tell us what to pursue, now he tells us what to fight. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you are called. He says, he says, now, man of God, Timothy, lift your eyes eternally. Lift your eyes vertically. Take hold of the eternal life to which you are called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. He says, I charge you in the presence of God. And now look at now how he double clicks on who this God is. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things. Is God the giver of life? So godliness is, with contentment is great gain because it's a life set on seeking God who's the giver of life. 
who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus. Now let's double-click on Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's getting Timothy's eyes on the fact that Jesus Christ will appear again. He will come back. I'm convinced. I'm convinced of it. I'm dead set convinced of it. Everyone, every eye look at me. The people who live with the greatest eternal focus on this world are the people whose eyes and hearts and minds are most set on the reappearing of Jesus Christ, the second coming of Jesus Christ. There, like when you read the Apostle Paul, he was, he was uh, give me a word, he was, seriously, help me, yeah, yeah, he was in the, intense on the day, the day, the day. It was all about the day. Jesus will come back. He will establish the new heavens and the new earth. The people who live with the greatest eternal focus are all about this fact that Jesus will appear again. Verse 15, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see to him, be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Do you see what Paul's doing here? He's not just saying, and don't love money. Christian people don't love money. What's he doing in the very next paragraph? He says, can I wax on Jesus for a bit? Can we just write about Jesus? Can we get our eyes on Jesus? Can we talk about the days coming back? Can we talk about the eternal salvation that is found in him? Can we talk about the pursuit of godliness and righteousness and all of this that is found in a relationship with Jesus? It is when, to say it like this, I haven't even given you the sermon point yet, the pursuit of the content is about this. It's about a Christ fixated, a Christ fixated, eternally focused, righteous life. When Our eyes are fixed on Jesus. I want to know him more and more and more. I want to pursue the life of righteousness. I want to pursue a life of godliness. I want to pursue this steadfastness. I want my eyes fixed on what matters for eternity. I want to think and think and think and think and think about the, the day he'll reappear and he'll make all of the wrong right. When we are so enamored by that, we will look at money of this world and be like, yeah, yeah, it's God's. I'll steward it. I'll steward it, but I don't love it. I'm not pursuing it as the desire of my heart. It's about a Christ-fixated, eternally focused, righteous life. Amen? God has to work that in us, though. God has to work that in our heart. Because if God doesn't work that in our heart, you and I, we both know. We'll go right back out here, and we'll, you know, drive by dream trucks, and we'll say, oh, God, fix our eyes on you. Now, we've looked at the heart. We've talked about the threat. We've talked about this pursuit in general. Christ fixated, eternally focused, righteous life. That's the pursuit. Now, in verse 17, I believe he begins to unpack the practices of the content. The practices of the one who actually believes godliness with contentment is great gain. But, but what was the first part? Remember the first part? If the fourth part's the practices, what was the first part? It was the, 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 the heart. These practices must flow from a heart. 
So what are the practices of the content? Uh, I'll, I'll give it to you first, then we'll read it. The practices of the content are this, rich in good works and giving. This is how content people live. This is how people who actually believe godliness with contentment is great gain. This is how they live, rich in good works and rich in giving. Look at verse 17. As for the rich in this present age. Now, let me just stop there and say, uh, I believe that's for all of us in this room. Okay? That's for all of us in this room. Uh, this isn't, you know, verse 17 isn't just for that super rich family who lives down the road. Okay? As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to be prideful about the riches and what they possess, nor, and charge them this, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. It's really important. God loves us so much. Why does he not want us to set our hopes on riches? That verse gives us a clue. Why, don't, why shouldn't we set our hopes on riches? Because it's, it's uncertain. Here today, gone tomorrow. Jesus talked about this. He says, like, uh, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where a moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. I, I've said this years ago. When we were first married, our house got broke into. Uh, I was at, we were both at work, and I came home, and the door was, like, wide open. And, and I walked in, and I looked over. The TV's off the wall. The computers are gone. I literally said out loud, because we still lived by the college that uh, I went to, and I saw a lot of buddies in college. I really said, I said, real funny, guys. You can bring my stuff out now. I did. I'm like, oh, no, shoot, like, we actually got broken into. All that stuff's gone. I remember laying in bed that night, and I remember that verse coming to mind, where thieves break in, uh, where, where thieves break in and steal. And like, boom, in a second, thousands of dollars worth of items, gone, like in a moment. We went to work, and they were there. We came home from work, and they were not. Do not set your hope on the uncertainty of riches, but, but on God. But set your hope on God. Who richly provides, now don't miss this, in the, in the midst of the, all the conviction we might feel about this content today, don't miss this, who richly provides us with everything to what? To enjoy. And so you know what we did last night? And I don't know, I'm going to sit down while I tell you this, but I'm going to sit down. Um, you know what we did last night? We grilled cheeseburgers in a nice little simple grill on a patio that we love. Praise God. Like, I don't want us to go home today and be like, oh man, I feel so guilty about, we have a grill. Should we be grilling? Oh man, like, our discipleship group's gonna be together. We're gonna be on a pontoon boat this afternoon. Praise the Lord. Like, how good is our God that he provides food, clothing, and he gives us grills to, and patios to enjoy time with family? Remember, the crux of this passage is about the desire for riches and about a love of money. But I don't, need, I don't believe God wants us to leave here, like, perpetually anxious of going, like, am I allowed to have a grill? I'm going to stand back up now. For some reason, I don't even know why I sat down. Who gives us everything to enjoy. Now we get to it. What are the practices of the content? The people who actually believe godliness with contentment is great gain. It says they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Amen, right? 
They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves. There it is. There it is. Thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Do we see it? God is not this killjoy. Don't have things. No, God wants us to have life that is truly life. He's calling us away from from what this, this world and this kingdom says should be the desire. And he's calling us to what should be the desire of his kingdom that we might truly experience life that God says is really life. And the life that God says is really life is a life rich in doing good, rich in good works, rich in generosity. He says that's where life is found. He's like, trust me, you all, that's where life is found. He's like, everyone's going to tell you here it's about more, 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 more. He's like, I live in a kingdom that's the total opposite. It's give, 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 and in that you will find life. So, if I can say it very directly, I love, I love you, like, and I just want to say it directly. People who love money are stingy in good works and giving. People who love God are generous in good works and giving. So how are we doing as a culture, as a culture? Uh, the typical American Christian gives 2.5% of their income. To put that in comparison, the American Christian gave 3.3% of their income during the Great Depression. In many ways, we're as prosperous as we've ever been and we're as stingy as we've ever been. So can I just cast a vision for us? And it's not, it's not, it's not life-shattering. It's not complex. I'm, very, I'm pretty much a very simple-minded person. The vision is this. What if we took what God's word said here today? What if we used his word to just ask him to search our heart around whether we believe that godliness with contentment is great gain? And as he does that heart work, what if we began to tangibly do the, to do the work of getting budgets out and going, how do we live well below the money we make so that we can be rich in good works and rich in giving? so that we can be ready to share when God brings any need our way. How, how do we actually, like, functionally live well below what we bring in? <clears throat> because often what culture teaches us is, do you have the money for it? Okay, just keep buying. You got the money. And, and there's no margin in our life. And so what if, we, what if we actually this week, with hearts that want to please God, with hearts that want to truly find life that is really life, with, with hearts that believe godliness with contentment is great gain, what if we began to make functional changes in our life to say we're going to build margin to give, for giving and good work, to share with whatever God brings our name, and then we're going to put that margin, top budget line item in our budget. And if we get raises and if we get bonuses and whatever, we're not going to increase our cost of living. We're just going to increase that margin. And some of us here and we go, hey, that's, that's great in theory, but we can't do it. We can't afford to. That's my point. Like, I think we actually got to get pretty radical about how we think what it looks like to be rich in good works, rich in generosity, rich in being ready to share.
And what if when we did that, and we began to say no and no and, and you know no to the new car for now, no to the you know no to the bigger house, no to the, no to no to, and we just began to embrace. We live well below our means, and because we do, God just brings people across our path that we can be rich in good works and generosity to. God allows us to fund kingdom work in ways that we never could. And what if we find that really is life, that is truly life as God defines it? Now, some of you are like, that's insane. What if what's really insane is living the American way where we're so over leveraged and so constantly stressed? with no money to give to any kingdom work. What if that's actually insane? And what if a life generously rich in generosity and good works is actually the norm that God calls us to, amen? Godliness with contentment is, it's a great game.